Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, we are going to head today to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible in front of you or a Bible on your device, I encourage you to turn there and follow along with me. As you're doing that, one final reminder and announcement that today, immediately following our 1030 worship gathering, is our annual member meeting. So if you are an official member of Northbrook Church, one of the commitments you make is to be a part of that meeting. Uh, We discuss our budget. uh, We vote on that budget, share some plans for the next year. Uh, I've got a few things I'm going to share about the future of our church. And so I hope you can plan on joining us for that. We will be serving uh, some sub sandwiches from Cousins right before so you don't come in hangry and excited to hear all the great things happening here. Uh, anyone's invited to come, uh, but you must be an official member to vote on the budget. So I hope you'll be here for that. That meeting will begin exactly at noon. Before we dive into our passage today, I also want to take a moment and pray as a congregation uh, for the devastation that has happened in Maui. I'm sure you've uh, been following the news. Uh, over 80 people have lost their lives uh, in the city. I believe it's pronounced Lahani. And just total devastation. And it's a, it hits a little closer to home because my daughter was there during the fire. She had to be evacuated. Her hotel burned to the ground. Uh, it was a very scary moment for, for a father to receive that phone call, uh, but I'm happy to say she's back and was able to get out uh, in time. So we want to pray for all those that are just grieving today over the massive, massive loss of that, that place. So God, we just pause now, opening our hearts to you, lifting our thoughts and prayers for the people of Maui and the utter catastrophic devastation, the loss of life, of homes, of community. We pray, Lord, have mercy. And now for the next few moments, would you speak to us through the scriptures? Let our minds be open, our hearts attentive to whatever it is that you want to say. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher today? Would you transform us and help us to become a bit more like you? Help us to follow you, to live lives that honor you. Amen. I love a good underdog story. Whenever I'm watching a sporting event, Uh, I always tend to root for the underdog, unless they're playing the Bills, of course. But beyond that, I'm a big fan of the underdog. I think one of my favorite underdog stories took place in the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. That was the Olympics in which uh, Team USA took on Team Russia in hockey. Uh, Team USA was never expected to even come close to winning. But in the last few moments of the game, this is what happened. Petrov with it. The Americans on top, 4-3. to Long shot. Craig able to get a piece of it to sweep it away. 28 seconds. The crowd going insane. Karlamov shooting it into the American end again. Morrow is back there. Now Johnson, 19 seconds. Johnson over to Ramsey. Do you let the knock? It's set by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is 
still lose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. That event has gone down in sports history as the miracle on ice. The Russian team had won five of the last six Olympics in hockey. They were expected to win again. Some of the best hockey players in the world were on the Russian team. The United States team was made up mostly of college students. And only 12 of them even went on to play in the NHL. It was truly a miracle on ice in which the underdog took down the giant. Have you ever felt like an underdog? Have you ever had life offer you insurmountable odds? Or maybe you've been in a position in life in which everything was on the line. Today's story from 1 Samuel chapter 17 is an underdog story. It's the story of of one beating the odds that are stacked against them. So as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 17 today, this story is, is a progression which began a few weeks ago when we were introduced to the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we were introduced first to a character named Hannah, who was a young woman who deeply desired to have a child but could not because of infertility issues. And so she prayed and she wept, God, would you please give me a child? And God answered her prayer. She gave birth to a boy named Samuel, whom she dedicated to God, and he served in the temple as a priest. As he served in the temple, he went from priest to prophet and eventually ruled over Israel as a judge. If you were here last week, then you know it was during that time that the nation of Israel rebelled against God and asked for a a human king, uh, a king that would become known as Saul, whom Samuel anointed. And so today's story, we pick up with Saul and the armies of Israel fighting a army, an army of Philistines. Now, the story that we're going to open today is is an iconic story. It's one most people have heard or read, whether they go to church or not. It's a story of a young shepherd boy named David and a giant named Goliath. Now, now, often this story, when presented in sermons and Bible studies, is, is kind of presented like a rah-rah kind of sermon. Like, you can do it, you can beat your giant, you can stand in the face of anything. It, it almost feels as though this story is used as a cheer, like what cheerleaders would use at a football game, you know. First and ten, do it again. First and ten, right? But that's not, that's not what this is. I know you're impressed at my cheering skills. (laughs) I hope that for the next few moments that we think a bit more deeply about this story. I think it's a mistake to simply think about it as the weak beating the strong. Because that's really not the message of the story at all. So as you pick up the story for Samuel chapter 17 verse 1, there's a conflict, there's a challenge. The Philistines gather their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephne's Damnim between Soko and Hezekiah. Saul and the Israelites camped in the valley of Allah and drew up the battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley between them. 
The Philistines, the quintessential enemy of Israel. The Philistines were from the coastal area of Canaan, and they were known really for two things, war and sex. The Philistines were constantly preparing for war, instigating war, fighting war. They also worshipped a pagan god named Dagon, who was the pagan god of fertility. So most of their religious rituals involved promiscuous sexuality. The Philistines were the army that were constantly at battle with Israel. So in 1 Samuel 17, battle lines have been drawn in a valley called Elah. On a map, it would look something like this. On one side, you have the Philistine army's position. On the other side of the valley, you have the Israelite army's position with a valley in between. The valley in between is where the story takes place. If you go one more screen, this is what the valley looks like today in modern-day Israel, the place where David took on Goliath. Now, now, as these two armies stood on opposite sides of the valley, what we know is that there's a lot of yelling, a lot of puffing out of chests, a lot of banging of swords on shields. There was probably a lot of trash talking. Your mama smells like rotten falafel or whatever they said in ancient Israel. But what we do know is there was no fighting happening. There was no battle that was happening. And so the Philistines decide to reach for an incredibly powerful weapon. The weapon of intimidation. Intimidation played a role and continues to play a role in all of our social interactions. It's used all of the time to get what we want or to send a message. Years ago, I was traveling back from India and I had a layover in Amsterdam. As I got off the plane in Amsterdam and walked down the jetway, there were three Large guys, military fatigues, large weapons, checking passports. These guys were massive, well over 6'2", 6'3". For a guy that's 5'9", they were, well, they were gigantic. And I thought in my mind, these specific guys were chosen not just because they're in the army, but because of their sheer size, because their size was intimidating. I mean, we impose ourselves in all kinds of ways. Some of us use our physicality, others our intellect, some our wealth and social status. I mean, have you ever felt intimidated? Have you ever been intimidated by someone else? Maybe a, a coworker, a boss, maybe even a family member, a parent, or a spouse. Intimidation is a weapon used to get what we want. And when we're intimidated, it's easy to simply want to retreat because intimidation presses on our insecurities because we think this person is more powerful than me. I mean, others of us are masters at using intimidation as a tool and a weapon. That's where we find the Philistines. Verse 4, so a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span, which... Some say he's eight, nine, ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a, a coat of scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And so it's estimated he had roughly 125 to 150 pounds of armor on, which was a lot. His spear shaft was like that of a weaver's rod 
and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, or roughly 15 pounds. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now Goliath is introduced as a champion. The word champion, as translated from the Hebrew language in this particular case, quite literally means the man between. Goliath came representing a very specific form of warfare. In the days of this story, when battle lines were drawn, the crude weapons of swords and spears meant there was going to be lots of blood, lots of death, lots of violence. So to prevent that, a combat strategy known as representative combat was used. And what that meant was each army picked a solitary person to represent them. The two men would fight to the death. The man that was left standing was declared the winner, and so was the entire army that he represented. The other army was declared the loser. They would surrender immediately and become subject to the conquering army. So that's what Goliath is proposing, representative combat. But he makes a huge mistake. He comes out and he says, I defy the armies of Israel. What he was doing was he was calling down a curse on the armies of Israel, therefore calling down a curse on God. But what he did not realize is that as he cursed the enemy, the, the armies of Israel and God himself, Goliath was actually calling a curse down on himself. Because if you turn all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 12, a promise was given to Abraham. And the promise was this, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So as Goliath cursed Israel, he was actually cursing himself based on the promise of Abraham. So now the scene changes. We move into verse 12. It's like a movie that pans to a different story in a different place. And we're introduced to a young boy named David. David was probably in his late teens. He's the son of a man named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judea. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons followed Saul to the war. The first one was Eliab, the second was Abinadib, and the third Shemaiah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. So for over a month, Goliath comes out and calls down curses. Now Jesse said to David, take this roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance of them. There was Saul and all his men in the valley of Israel in the valley of Allah fighting against the Philistines. Now because David is under the age of 20, he is not able to fight in the army. And so he's at home tending his father's sheep, their flocks, and he's going back and forth between the battle line delivering supplies. In this case, bread and, and cheese and grain. And so, so essentially, <clears throat> David is almost like the ancient equivalent of DoorDash, right? He's just kind of delivering food to people that, that need it. And he's going back and forth and back and forth. So in this particular scenario, he goes to the battle line, verse 20. 
Early the next morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So David said to the man standing next to him, wait a minute, wait a minute, what what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So while the armies of Israel, the armies that have witnessed multiple miracles at the hand of God, are now running away each day, hiding in their tents and wetting themselves. They're so terrified. They're shaking. They're afraid of this one man. But David, something rises up in David. He sees the armies of God hiding, and he says, this is not right. And so what rises up in David is two things. A whole lot of courage... And a little bit of humanity, a little bit of selfish motivation, maybe selfish ambition. Because he begins by saying, wait a minute, what will be done for the person that kills this giant? Oh, listen, David, you're going to get buckets of money. You're going to get the girl, like the girl of the kingdom. This is, this is the king's daughter. And your family... Well, they'll be exempt from taxes for the rest of their life. Wow. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of Israel? Oh, I think there was a lot of courage, but a little bit of motivation. But that's not all that's happening here. It's bigger than the reward. Because this was David's defining moment. It was this moment, this story, that shapes his trajectory from shepherd boy to the king of Israel. Verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to King Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant David will go fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go fight against this Philistine. You're a young man, and this this guy, he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Now, a poor translation of this story is, We think of this poor, weak little boy named David, who's filled with a lot of courage, but not very realistic. How is he going to go out and fight this giant? But we forget. We forget, first of all, that David is a shepherd, which means he's a farm boy. Most of the farm boys that I know are scrappy. 
They're strong. They're in shape. We also forget that David says to, to Saul, while I'm out in the fields watching my sheep, every once in a while, a lion or a bear shows up. Now, I've been to Israel and I've never seen a lion or a bear there, so I did some research. And what I discovered was at the time of this story, about 1025 BC, lions and bears did exist in that part of the world. So a lion or a bear shows up and what did I do? It took one of my sheep, so I did the only natural thing to do. I went and struck it and took the sheep out of its mouth. And when it turned on me, I took it by the hair. Now, you ever seen a lion or a bear? I don't know that I would do that, but what I do know is if there was a guy who could take a lion by its hair and kill it, I want that guy on my team. I don't know that I want Goliath on my team. I want the guy that kills lions and bears on my team. So David's a shepherd boy. He kills lions and bears. And what we also forget, number three, that he has a slingshot. Now don't think slingshot. Slingshots in his day were deadly weapons. Slingshots consisted of a leather pouch on a leather strap. A rock the size of a tennis ball was placed into the leather pocket and it was swung around like this. It was said in history that someone that was good with a slingshot was deadly accurate at 200 yards. The rock the size of a tennis ball left the slingshot at 120 miles an hour. Some records say that a warrior could hit the head of a man and kill him with a slingshot at over 200 yards. David was pretty accurate with a slingshot. Now, now the image I get in my head now of this battle is this. Any Indiana Jones fans out there? Anybody? I can't remember if it's Raiders of the Lost Ark or Temple of Doom, but there's a scene in Indiana Jones in which he's in an open-air market, and this guy comes out with swords and he's doing all these maneuvers and it looks like Indiana Jones is going to get slaughtered. And this guy's, and he just stands there, take out, out his pistol, shoots him. The guy dies and he walks away. That's what I see when I see this story. David is deadly accurate with the slingshot. Verse 38. So Saul dresses David in his own tunic. He puts on a coat of armor and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was... But because they were not useful to him, he said, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. He's like, this is not who I am. Take this stuff off. So he took it off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He knew his staff. It was a staff that he struck the lion and the bear. And he chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch. With his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw David as little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear. And Javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him, took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath, and he killed him. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. So here comes David. And oh, how must Goliath have laughed. Maybe he laughed so hard, he leaned back and his helmet slipped just enough to expose his forehead. You come at me with sticks? Aren't you the Uber Eats guy bringing cheese sandwiches? Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds. But David, see David, he, he knew who he was. He had this sense of identity and, and confidence. And he had some good strategy. I mean, first of all, Goliath is huge, which means he's probably slow. Some even suggest that he had vision problems because in order to grow that big, there would have had to have been a problem with, I believe, with the pituitary gland. And those that have growth issues often have issues with vision. And so he was big, he was slow, maybe with poor vision. The only way he could really defeat David was by getting a hold of him. If he got a hold of David, it's over. But David knew, strategically, I'm not going to go near this guy. I'm going to let the sling do all the work. And I'm going to trust in God. Because he's the one whom I'm fighting for. David was small, light. He stayed out of his reach and he was confident in his God. He said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the enemies of Israel, whom you have defied. I mean, the speeches they exchanged were longer than the battle. David wins with with good strategic thinking and trust in his God. Focused confidence in God. I mean, if you look at the narrative, the exchange that happens, David focuses four times more on God than he does on Goliath. I think sometimes we, we face giants of our own and we spend so much time staring into the eyes of the giant that we forget about the gaze we should be giving to Christ. David, David had this focused confidence in his God. I mean, how do you get that? I love what the author Jacques Philippe writes. He says this, and how does one get this total confidence in God? How can we nourish it in ourselves? Certainly not by intellectual speculation or theological considerations. They will never withstand the moments of trial. No, but only by a contemplative gaze on Jesus. So I can imagine David, all those nights that he sat watching over his sheep in the evening, maybe warming his hands by the fire, looking out into the star-filled sky, gazing upon his God, fostering and creating trust and relationship with his creator. I mean, the, the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Well, how do you become someone after God's own heart? How do you become so in tune with God's heart? By gazing upon him. By turning and focusing your attention on him. And because he came to the battle with that, 
It didn't happen in it. He had a long history of gazing into the heart of his God. Because of that, he simply did not see what was in front of him. But he knew who was all around him. David takes on the champion, the man in between, and he himself becomes the man in between, and he wins as he stands between the giant and Israel. But we, today, we have another champion. One who stands between us and whatever giant it is that we face. We have Christ. The scriptures remind us in the New Testament, for there is one God and one meteor, one man in between, God and mankind, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. So maybe this week, you're staring into the eyes of your own giant. Oh, and giants come in all kinds of forms. Some of them come in the forms of a great opportunity. You're just scared to take it because it seems overwhelming. You're the underdog. How could this ever happen? Or maybe your giant's a bit more more challenging. Maybe it's financial. Maybe there's a health issue. Maybe there's a family issue, and the giant just looks so big. Sometimes take a playbook from David and just sometimes you just got to take it by the hair. And other times, it's shifting our gaze. Maybe you look at the giant and you're intimidated, you're scared, you're filled with fear. That's kind of what happens when we stare at giants. But what if we shifted our gaze, looked not at the giant, but looked at the one who overcomes giants, shifting our gaze towards Christ? I mean, sometimes it's hard to do, and so there's a really simple practice that I like to implement in my own life. Some call it, refer to it as a breath prayer. Whenever you're staring into the eyes of a giant, just pausing and praying a prayer that's as short as a breath and just refocusing our intention on the one who matters. <sighs> Jesus, I trust you. God, I know you're good. And in that simple phrase, I'm refocusing my attention from the giant to Jesus. So maybe you're facing a giant. And the best thing you can do this morning is just pause. Take a breath. Lord, I do trust you. Lord, I trust you. Amen.